Welcome to Backroom Talk. Todd's an OPEX OG, right? Like he owns South Loop Strength Conditioning, which is just, they just have such a great reputation. I was not someone who at any point up until becoming involved in the fitness industry, I would, would I have thought that I would be involved in the fitness industry. I grew up playing music a lot, played in punk bands and stuff like that in high school and um, toured in bands for a while. Did read your article, the op-ed that came out in Morning Chalk Up on uh, why my gym isn't an essential service. Uh, did you get any blowback from that? De definitely got some blowback. To listen to more Backroom Talk, be sure to subscribe. Learn to design personalized programs with the OPEX system of coaching by heading to opexfit.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself, man. I know you dabble in fitness a little bit, but who cares about that right now? You do a lot of other very, very interesting things, man. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, probably the, the the thing that I spend a lot of time doing that I suppose is interesting for a fitness person is I'm involved in a lot of um, heavy metal stuff, right? I play in two death metal bands. Uh, Actually, I'm wearing a shirt from my gym right now that's ripped off from a, a Norwegian black metal band's logo. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that I grew up playing music a lot, right? I mean, I, I played in punk bands and stuff like that in high school and um, toured in bands for a while after, um, you know, during college and graduating from college. And for a little bit, I thought that I might even actually like want to do that as my life. Um, but after being on a few tours that were a little bit too grueling and sort of seeing too much of the inside of the uh, the music industry, I was like, you know what, this isn't really what I'm interested in doing. I'm frustrated because I can't work out and we're just like eating garbage food at gas stations all the time. And um, so then, you know, accidentally ended up uh, working in the fitness industry full time and accidentally opened a gym. And so, you know, I, I've still tried to prioritize as much as possible, um, continuing to work on music. You know, I started taking guitar lessons and really trying to force actual practicing into my schedule since I was like a self-taught musician growing up, which at the time I thought was cool. But as an actual adult engaged in, you know, teaching people how to do things is really stupid because you just learn a lot of bad ideas and, you know, have to figure things out for yourself that people figured out how to do long ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that's a big part of a big part of what I do and, and something that's a priority for me that, you know, is easy to get shoved aside through the, the rigors of small business ownership and having a lot of emails all the time, but you know, you make it happen anyway. What do you mean by the, the band road life? What, what, what did that look like, man? What outside of eating garbage food and not being able to work out, uh, what, yeah. what did you like or not like it's, about that? It's interesting, right? Because a lot of people think that going on tour is a, a, a sort of glamorous, like fun lifestyle with like a lot of adventure. And like, you know, they've maybe seen a Motley Crue movie or like have some idea of what things are like. And honestly, it's it's really kind of um, like grueling and boring. And I think anyone who has ever traveled for work has probably experienced something somewhat similar where you're just kind of like, going from place to place and you're in a lot of different areas, but your existence is sort of the same in every area where you're like, okay, you know, I, I can just use the, the example of being on tour with a band where you're like, great, we have to be in this new city that's six hours away. So we have to get up relatively early and drive there. And then we have to load into the venue at this specific time. And then we have to sound check at this specific time. And the show is at this specific time. So you have these like chunks of your schedule where you have to be somewhere. And in between those times is not long enough to really do anything other than just like 
go to a nearby Starbucks because they have Wi-Fi and, you know, people in the band want to do the same thing that they've done every day and not go somewhere interesting. And you're just like, cool. So we basically just sort of exist in this haze of unloading and loading equipment and trying to, to get on the Wi-Fi at Starbucks. So it's not as fun as people might think, although like there are obviously high points, you know, where you have a, a show that's particularly good, um, or some friends in a city that, uh, um, you know, you don't see necessarily that often, or you do actually have a little bit more time somewhere and you're able to, you know, spend a lot of time walking around some, some, you know, winding streets in Eastern Europe or whatever. And so there, there's definite moments that are very, very, um, fulfilling and exciting, but a lot of it is, is very much just like a grind and it's difficult to kind of do much other than exist in this kind of like, you know, pre-scheduled haze of not really being able to get anything done. So you were like, you were in a legit, like you're, you're traveling overseas. I don't, I don't know what legit versus not means when it comes to bands, <laughs> yeah. but when I think of like people that I know that have messed around with being in a band, they're playing like at a local, you know, dump bar or something like that. So you were like actually traveling around and doing this thing and making money? Uh, well, so that's that's one of the other things, right? It's really difficult for really anyone to make a lot of money uh, doing doing anything in music, right? And that, that even bands that actually, you know, I mean, f- given that this is backroom talk, um, a lot of folks own fitness businesses. And it's like, huh, I can take in a lot of revenue, but if I have a landlord and any employees... I don't really get to keep any of it. This is this this isn't working out so well, right? That that bands operate in a very similar dynamic where even bands, I mean, I know a lot of people who are very quote unquote successful in the music industry, but essentially, you know, by the time they pay for the bus, their booking agent gets a cut of everything. Um, maybe they have some uh, some people who they have to hire for their crew, um, et cetera. By the time that the the money is left over for the band, there's really not a whole lot. So there's plenty of people who are very successful in the music industry from an outside perspective i mean that you know are on tour nine months out of the year and live with their parents and drive uber um the times that they're home because that they they personally don't take home very much money and um you know it's just it's just not a not a very long-term sustainable lifestyle for a lot of folks i mean there's there's people too you know i mean again in the sort of back end of the industry who one would think are super successful and they're like you know what I'm just going to become like a drum tech for a really, really famous band because I don't want to deal with the nonsense of trying to figure out how to make this like a life that actually makes sense for me. Where, where did, where does fitness come in, man? Like you, you say the, uh, there's, there's like connections or synergies with coaches and gym owners, you know, paying a landlord and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they come out not making as much money. Why, why go from, you know, not being, not being fulfilled or, uh, wanting to continue with the band life into fitness. Where did that kind of come in? Yeah, I mean, th- th- that's something that was, I mean, like I said, it was very much an accident. I was not someone who at any point up until becoming involved in the fitness industry, I would would I have thought that I would be involved in the fitness industry, right? And I don't think that too many people around me would have thought that I would have been involved in the fitness industry. I mean, I definitely, you know, had an interest um, in soccer growing up. You know, I played a lot and then actually had, had uh, you know, the, the sort of existential crisis of being like, oh, am I a, a soccer person or am I like a punk person in high school, right? And, and it sort of definitely went more in the, the punk road um, rather than being, you know, 
yelled at by some maniac on the soccer pitch. I was like, yeah, I think I'd rather just go to band practice. This is not so much what I'm into. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I gravitated towards difficult training and, you know, just wanting to do hard things and um, ended up finding CrossFit through that process, right? You know, you, you spend enough time on the, the internet, internet looking for difficult workouts and you come across CrossFit and you're like, oh yeah, I think I've heard of this. This is supposed to be hard and you start doing it, right? And so um, I, I, I was doing CrossFit just really on my own, kind of like a lot of people in the, you know, 2008 to 2010 era, just sort of like looking up the workouts, going to Bally Fitness at the time and just doing the stupidest stuff possible, I imagine. You know, I, I, I have some videos of myself training from a few years later that are just awful. And so I can't even imagine what would have been happening uh, in the Globo Gym, right? Where you're just like, man, this, this is really embarrassing. And I was probably judged relentlessly by the, the various like water jug toting uh, tank top bros as I should have been. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was something that I just became very interested in and found a lot of, um, uh, fulfillment in terms of like, okay, like how does this actually work? How do, how does one snatch? Like, how do you get better at this? And through that process of just sort of self-educating and trying to figure out what was going on, you know, I ended up learning enough that, um, I was able to help other people. So I started coaching based upon that, which again, wasn't really something I had any intention of doing, but you know, the, the idea of like, okay, I can actually coach people and make enough money to exist doing that, um, was pretty appealing. And so I just kind of accidentally started doing that. And again, like a lot of other people in that time, you very quickly are sort of like, okay, if I want to make this, a an actual, um, career or like have something that, that makes any sense, maybe I should open my own gym. And so, you know, sort of did that again, recklessly and without any real idea of what was going on and have, uh, stumbled forth and continued to continue to have, um, you know, enough, enough of a gym exist to, to be here today, I suppose. How much overlap was there with touring with the band and then finding fitness and beginning your coaching journey? Yeah. I mean, I was definitely interested in fitness, um, before like a lot of touring stuff. Cause it, you know, I mean, like I said, I was doing a lot of hard workouts and not necessarily CrossFit, but I remember there was some quote unquote Navy SEAL workout, right? You're like, yeah, like what's one of the Navy SEALs do to work out that I, that I would do that was, um, uh, some people would probably recognize this. It was something like you would run a few miles. It, it was like a pseudo Murph type of situation, right? It was like, you would run a few miles and you would do some, very high volume number of dips. It was like you do a hundred dips, maybe 200 pushups and a hundred pull-ups or something like that. Right. And then you would run a few miles again. And it was not necessarily done with the, um, like intensity or the, the sort of like mindset of, of a CrossFit athlete doing a workout. But, you know, I would do that a few times a week, which is just absurd thinking about it. Right. Where you're like, why would I like, what in the world was I doing? Just the same workout over and over and over again. But it was just, you know, what, what you did when you didn't know what you were doing. Um, and so I, I was doing things like that and I was trying to do it on tour. You know, I would go on runs and do push-ups and things like that. And I did start to, um, actually do CrossFit workouts while I was still touring somewhat regularly. And yeah, I mean, I would try to get people, um, to do them with me. I actually do remember I was on warp tour in 2010 and was trying to do CrossFit stuff. Right. And I have like my luggage and I would do, you know, 
like overhead walking lunges with, uh, with my luggage. And one of the guys from a band called the casualties had some dumbbells and he would sort of do like a standard, like fluff and buff type of workout. I remember trying to do some training with him and like, you know, we were trying to do handstand pushups kicked up against the side of their trailer. Um, and so I, I was definitely like trying to, to get training in while on tour. Um, but you know, it was obviously challenging, but I, th- I think that part of it, especially at that time was just being like, okay, we're just going to be adaptable and, and figure out how to, how to make it happen. I just have to take a moment to uh, reflect that you just said you were um, on warped tour. So as like a 14 year old girl, that was my yep. dream. And I grew up in Australia, so we didn't have access to uh, tours like, uh, like you guys do in Australia. Oh, sorry, in America. But uh, sure. yeah, that was my teenage dream was going on Warped Tour. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, Warped Tour um, as, a, as an artist is absolutely brutal. The, the routing on it, well, RIP, right? Warped Tour, I think, was, was last year the last year of it? I don't know. I'm not keeping tabs anymore. I, th- I, I, I think last year was the the final warp tour, right? That that sort of like traveling festival model. I think that they realized that that doesn't really make any sense. Um, but the routing on it was absolutely insane. That because um, they would want to hit major markets on weekends, so you know it would be like okay. But we, when, and when the year that I was on it, I, I did like a West Coast run of it, so it'd be like you'd want to play whatever. LA on one weekend and San Francisco on another weekend and everything on the West coast is kind of far apart. So you just like do these insane drives constantly. You know, you, 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 I think that the, the first night that I played was in Kansas. And then I think the next night after that was potentially supposed to be in Calgary and ended up being in Edmonton, which is like a 36 hour drive. Right. So it's like you literally play sleep for three hours at the venue and then have to drive actually nonstop, just like rotating drivers to get to the next venue. So, so warp tour was a, a very grueling endeavor. Like I'd sorry, the math didn't make sense. You said next day driving. Yeah. yeah. So, so they would take a day off. Right. So it'd be like the next, the next show would be right. 36 hours away. So you basically just have to drive like pretty much straight from the end of the one show to the, the beginning of the next one. I'm sure there's got to be like a lot of debauchery going on to get you through uh, traveling like that. Is there, you're, you're in the fitness world now, uh, life looks different, but is there anything about that lifestyle that you miss? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, the, the amount of debauchery is kind of, it's interesting, right? Again, it's not really what people think, right? People think it's like, oh, it's just this like crazy party all the time. And there certainly are moments like that, like it happens. Um, but I, th- I think a lot of it, I th- you know, as someone who's sort of seen the inside of it, I think a lot of the, um, you know, drug and alcohol abuse is people sort of self-medicating out of boredom, right? You're just like, like I said before, you're in this weird schedule that kind of doesn't make sense and isn't very conducive. Your sleep is super altered all the time. And you're like, great, I have this weird four-hour time block with a few things thrown in where I can't do anything. I might as well just get high. So I, I think that there's certainly an element of just, you know, like how do I stimulate myself to exist that that results in some of that debauchery. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, some of it too is, is if you're in a new spot with – friends and you just sort of start egging each other on like it's very easy for you know people to decide like oh great like we're gonna try to whatever like break into this pool that we see somewhere and 
you know, you just kind of like decide to do stupid things like that, that groups of traveling young men tend to do. Um, but in terms of the, the actual lifestyle, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm still in, in bands that will go and do stuff and it's, it's a nice thing to do for whatever, a weekend or a few days at a time. I mean, obviously in the COVID era, it's uh, you know, big question mark as to when any of those kinds of activities will return. Um, but it, it's, it's something that, you know, you can scratch the itch on occasion rather than being like, great, I want to be on tour several months out of the year, like no real interest in doing that. So what's going on with your gym at the moment in uh, light of COVID? Yeah, totally. We're in downtown Chicago, so I can give just sort of a framework for what the regulations look like, what the, what the rules look like and how we're kind of adapting to that. So for, um, uh, framework, what is today? It's the end of August, right? And in Chicago currently, um, the overall cases have kind of like just sort of been steady at something around 300 ish per day for like a rolling seven day average. And the city is using 200 cases per day as like a benchmark that they want to be below and 400 cases per day as a benchmark above which like further regulations will sort of come down the pipeline. So it's just sort of in this in-between spot where, you know, things are open, but with a lot of restrictions and people are for the most part being pretty good about like mask wearing and, and generally following guidelines. Um, but it's just sort of this like limbo spot that's not really clearly bad or clearly good in terms of overall trajectory. So that's just kind of like the general environment for fitness businesses. Um, right now we can have, uh, the, the regulation is essentially group classes of up to 10 people at once, you know, social distancing requirements. Um, and, uh, I don't know if there's any other like top down regulations that matter a lot, but for us, we do, you know, a combination of, of group classes and, um, personal training and program design. So we have sort of like three different populations that are all kind of coming in and we basically just taped off the taped off the floor like a lot of people have been doing into into lanes that are six feet apart and had to enforce a bunch of pretty strict sign up procedures of like hey you know if you're coming in to to do your program like you have to sign up for a time and you have to leave when it's done if you're coming in to do a group class you know you have to sign up you can't show up if you didn't actually get a spot on the uh an actual spot on the floor right and personal training like coaches make sure that you know you're not going over the total number of people allowed at once when you're actually booking clients. And we're, we're a bit lucky in that we have um, like two spaces that we can sort of train in. So we're able to, we, we've essentially said we're going to keep, you know, 10 people on the main floor training at once. And uh, we have like a side room that we're having four people at once. in. so we're, we're sort of capping our overall attendance at 14. And it's just a matter of like, you know, can we get people to, to follow the regulations and be respectful, which for the most part, I think people are. Um, although we're starting to see that break down a little bit as we've added more people coming back in, right? That initially it was kind of a slow trickle. We're starting to hit the point of like new members are signing up, old members are coming back. And now we're sort of like, great, this is a good problem to have, but we have way more people who want to train than can actually fit in the gym at a time. So how are we going to figure that out? And how are we going to make the, you know, like I said before, the business model makes sense where okay, we're, you know, at 50% of our total people at once that we're allowed to be in the gym at once. How does this work going forward? Which, you know, I don't know if I have the answer to that. So does that have anything to do with your square footage or are they just like the city of Chicago is like 10 people, like if yeah. you have 500 yeah. square feet or 10,000? Originally the, the guideline was, um, I believe it was 25% of capacity, which I don't know what that actually meant. If it was like fire code capacity, which is how I read it, that wouldn't really restrict anyone 
for anything, right? Like the fire code capacity for our gym was like 200 something people, I think, right? Because we have over 7,500 square feet. So, you know, there, we couldn't even fit that many people in there. And the only time we would have that many people in is like hosting a competition or something. Um, but in Chicago, the rule is straight up group classes are capped at 10 individuals. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the regulations work for larger gyms that are potentially doing, you know, a lot of people training on their own or personal training. I think that it may still be that 25% capacity for them, but that might be more relevant for a larger, like big box gym. I'm not actually um, totally sure how that works. How long were you guys closed before you were, you were able to reopen with these uh, guidelines? Yeah, so we closed we closed the gym in the middle of March. Um, and I think we closed maybe a week or two before gyms were mandated to close. Because um, we, we decided to close when it was mandated that bars and restaurants close. Right? Because um, we were sort of talking internally. And we decided, you know what, as soon as we realize that like we're going to be closed no matter what we should just close it's not worth it to to continue um staying open just based upon you know what what the trajectory was looking like and it, it became pretty obvious that okay even if it's not mandated that gyms are going to be closed it will be within the next 10 days so like just pull the plug now so we closed beginning slash middle of march and we were allowed to reopen in some capacity, um, I think in the middle of June. And Chicago has sort of like changed the regulations a few times. And I don't remember all the exact details of how that worked. But we were originally allowed to open, you know, not doing classes and essentially doing like one-on-one -on -one training. Um, so we did that for a little bit. And then we were allowed to do some form of classes. And then we were allowed to have more people in the gym with a little bit less regulation. And then they um, reduced the total capacity. Although what we were doing before was pretty close to what we we're doing now, right? I think we maybe had a few more slots available for people to take. Um, and we weren't as strict about the 10 people max on the main training floor at once. But, you know, we, we were, we were trying to think about, okay, what's our responsibility as far as, you know, not being another vector for, uh, COVID to potentially spread or just like setting a bad example for other gyms. And so we were, we were being pretty strict with like, we don't want to have 25 people in here at once. If you just look at the math of what is the, the prevalence of COVID in the population of Chicago and you have 45 people all in the same spot, what's the likelihood that one of those people is going to be potentially spreading COVID? It's like the, the, the numbers on that don't look good. And there's some interesting fluctuations in the actual mathematics of it where it's like, depending on the prevalence in the population, like 15-ish people tends to be where there's like a critical point where all of a sudden the risk starts to go way, way, way up. So we sort of use that as a benchmark in our heads of where we wanted to be. You've obviously taken a very balanced and uh, thoughtful approach to this. And I did read your article, the op-ed that came out in Morning Chalk Up a oh, couple yeah. months ago on uh, why my gym isn't an essential service. Uh, did you get any blowback from that? Because it was quite counter a lot of the rhetoric that was going on on social media. Yeah, of course. Yeah, De definitely got some blowback. Um, so uh, for, for folks who didn't potentially read it, I wrote an op-ed for the Morning Chalk Up a few months ago um, just about why my gym isn't an essential business because there was a lot of, like you said, people on social media claiming that their gyms were essential and that they should be allowed to be open and just sort of like defying regulations. And uh, quite frankly, I was just pretty frustrated with it where I was like, okay, if we all want to be open in let's say October 2020, with as few regulations as possible, the best thing we can probably do is get COVID as under control as we possibly can. And not listening and obeying regulations is like the worst way to potentially do that, 
right? That, that we need to think, I mean, sort of like training, right? Where you're like, I want to be good right now. Let me just do like the hardest, stupidest possible workout I can every single day until my body breaks down. It's like, well, okay, that's not a good idea. Like if you want to be good, like the best way to do it is to actually think about the long-term consequences of your actions. So that was kind of the, the, the sort of argument that I was making. I was like, listen, if you want your gym to be open and doing well and to not have, you know, people afraid to come in and to not have regulations, like we need to get COVID under control and very clearly a bunch of people getting together in indoor spaces, breathing on each other is like not necessarily the best way to, to get COVID under control. So like, let's think about this and try to figure out what actually works. And, um, in terms of blowback, I mean, I expected there to be some controversy, um, but I didn't realize I was stepping on quite the, uh, the cultural landmine that I was. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly some people pushed back. Um, most of them didn't really read the article clearly and just sort of like willfully misinterpreted things that I said. A few people actually, I think had, you know, thoughtful criticisms and, um, I, I, I had a conversation with, uh, with John from make wads great again about that, where, you know, he was, um, essentially arguing about essentialness and it, it was kind of a, an interesting discussion in, in that, you know, I was referring more to essential business from like a regulatory perspective where it's like drug stores and grocery stores are essential businesses from a, a legal perspective in terms of them not being closed, not essential in terms of like net positive for society, let's say, um, Although the one, the one pushback that was funny is that someone just signed me up for a bunch of like NRA and guns rights newsletters as sort of like a troll where it's like, oh, we're going to own this lib and like make them read a bunch of gun email, which I mean, I'm actually impressed at how many different newsletters they signed me up for. Cause I keep unsubscribing and I'm like, how am I still on these lists? But, um, you know, that, that was actually like a pretty good owning of a of a lib good so to, to get speak. a variety of uh, opinions right you gotta research yeah. what everyone's putting out and saying do you do you still uh do you still stand behind that todd like do you still because obviously some months have passed and um i, I can kind of see where people's frustrations with that article came from because you have to look at it like you know we're we're following regulations where the people that are setting the regulations don't even know what the fuck they're talking about half the time right so I can see it from both sides where it's like, I think you took a common sense approach where you're like, it's probably not good to have 30 people in my gym sweating and breathing the same air. So I, I get that. But do you, do you still feel exactly that same way? Or do you, would you write that a little bit differently if you had to redo it today, knowing what you know over the past couple months? Yeah, you know, without having read that article since a few months ago, I don't actually know, um, since I don't remember exactly what I said. And I think that, you know, you, you, you constantly are updating your beliefs and sort of making changes based upon, you know, how things go and, and things like that. There definitely were some things I would have rephrased because I mean, like I said before, there were some people who I think were willfully misinterpreting what I said, but I think there are a few other things that, um, just, just sort of struck the wrong tone, right? Like I, I was maybe a little bit pejorative in terms of talking about people being like contrarian conspiracy theorists and things like that, which like, I do think that there is a strain of that, particularly in the like, whatever functional fitness, CrossFit, whatever community, which is sort of like, everyone is wrong and I know best. And, you know, they tell me that Gatorade is good for me and whatever. So like, therefore my children shouldn't get vaccinated. And you're like, guys, what, come on, what, what? planet are you on? So there's definitely a strain of that. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't mean that to come across as I guess, like insultingly as some people took that. So I would have definitely rephrased that. Um, in terms of the overall thrust of things, I mean, I, I, you know, I think we have a much better understanding of the, the way that COVID spreads currently than we did at that time. And, and very much so, you know, it, it does seem that 
indoor spaces with a lot of like respiratory exchange are like essentially the way that, you know, COVID spreads. So it's like, should gyms potentially be able to be open with people wearing masks and like not talking to each other a bunch before and after class? Like that seems like a pretty reasonable, um, like regulatory thing to impose upon gyms based upon, you know, my understanding of the, of the way that, um, we understand COVID to spread currently, right? And, um, you know, I think the other aspect of it that that I think you were starting to touch on, and we've experienced this as well, is that very clearly the, the folks making regulations don't necessarily have like a fine-grained understanding of how different types of fitness businesses work, right? Where it's like, okay, we're going to regulate gyms. What does that mean? Does that mean Planet Fitness? Does that mean Orange Theory? Does that mean a CrossFit gym? Does that mean an OPEX gym, right? Like all of those have a lot of different ability to, to sort of control what does and doesn't happen at their facilities. Um, and, and certainly there is some you know, difficulty in that because you're sort of left guessing at what they mean by regulations that are clearly not written for a facility of your size. And we've seen this in Chicago too, where there's a, a group of um, like boutique fitness owners who are sort of lobbying for, you know, the, the regulators to actually understand the dynamics of our specific business model. And for the most part, I'm like on board with that. I'm like, yo, we should definitely have a seat at the table to explain how this business works. But simultaneously, they're like, these class limits are ridiculous. Like we need to up the limit to 50 people and like, we need to remove the mask requirement. I'm like, guys, I want a seat at the table, but like, that's stupid. Again, that's going to be the exact way that we continue to have this problem with COVID spreading in the community. And that's going to necessitate further regulations, you know, fear in the consumer. Cause I think that's another aspect that a lot of folks are missing is it's like, it's not just the state coming down on you. Like people aren't going to come if they're scared. And if this is an ongoing problem, people are going to be scared. And whether or not you as a fitness business owner think that it is a big deal or not, like people do. So it's not just like the state is stopping your business. It's like this entire problem actually is. I think we're naturally biased toward feeling a certain type of way if it's advantageous for us, right? So it's like, that's just like what you're saying. You know, if I own a CrossFit gym, I'm probably going to say I can make my CrossFit gym extremely safe. If I owned a personal training studio, I would probably say, I'm so much different than this CrossFit gym. These are the things that I can do inside of my business that these guys can't do over there, right? So it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like everyone, I don't care what people say, we're all naturally looking out for ourselves and our best interests, especially uh, if we're considering the economics behind it and I own a, a, a gym or a facility and I'm thinking in the back of my head, like I have to fucking make money, right? So it's like, yeah. how do I reverse engineer this thing to make my model the perfect model um, to combat COVID or you know the perfect model to keep people as safe as possible or whatever the case is. Because I've heard that argument from CrossFit gym owners. I've heard that argument from even our gym owners, right? And obviously we have that biasness as well toward our model. I've heard that argument from PT studios. I've even heard that argument from commercial gyms that have hundreds of people walking into a door and exercising and you know like you said the respiratory exchange and there's there's 100 100 x of that happening as compared to a personal training studio so i think we're always going to find where our model can work best in this in this whole pandemic Tony, yeah. you'd mentioned that you guys are approaching capacity and kind of trying to figure out what to do next do you have any ideas around that and is it feasible for you to keep operating with a limit of 10 people uh in the building yeah. I mean, I think that it's, um, it's interesting and I'm not totally sure. 
right? Because with, with with our model, again, where we're kind of like mostly like a group class model with a, a, a decent amount of um, program design and personal training on top of that, the, the way we've sort of looked at things historically is almost like an airplane or an airline kind of business model, right? We're like, okay, if we can get the group classes to sort of cover operating costs, then everything we do on top of that is essentially profitable, right? And the way that a lot of airlines operate is that they don't really make money on tickets, but, you know, the any of the additional upsells to drinks, to getting people to sign up for their miles, credit cards, et cetera, is where they actually make a lot of profit. And so we, we've kind of operated roughly in that paradigm of like, if we can have enough just straight up recurring monthly revenue from group, group class members to cover rent, payroll, utilities, et cetera, and then we're able to sell a decent amount of personal training and skill sessions and nutrition coaching and program design and stuff like that, then you know we're able to, to have enough of a margin to be a reasonable business that can exist, right? Um, and so with the, the current restrictions, it's difficult to say whether or not that's going to be the way things will work going forward. Um, certainly there is an element of like, okay, we're, we're in a major downtown environment and that changes things a lot, right? Cause we have a lot of folks who are getting extended work from home orders. that are not coming back to the gym anytime soon. Whereas I think that gyms that are located in more residential areas are potentially having less of that problem, right? Cause their people are like, Oh, I don't have to go into the office anymore. I'm going to join a gym by my house. So I think we're getting hit harder by that, but simultaneously, you know, the, the, the ongoing like second and third order effects of that, you know, we, we just sort of need to see where that settles out in terms of what is the potential population available to want to sign up for fitness services at a gym like ours. Um, I mean, based upon the, the simple supply and demand, <clears throat> excuse me, based upon the simple supply and demand, you know, aspects of like, okay, we have this many slots and this many people who want them, you know, certainly there is an element of like, all right, the rates are just going to have to go up based upon that, um, which is a little bit uncomfortable, especially in times of like global pandemic, people losing jobs. You don't want to sort of just like price gouge your members. But I think that there, there is an element of like, okay, we, we, we want to be accommodating of people for at least several months We can't, where we kind of start to see where this goes, but it is going to have to be like, all right, realistically, we, we, we did have, you know, 275, 300 something members, depending on how you count it. And like now the new equilibrium is going to be 200. Like, well, okay. What is the, the cost per person to make that work? Um, and, and I do think that there is also an element of um, being able to sell more stuff as kind of like a, a potential, like, whatever premium package right where it's like can we give off hours access to the facility can we give people sort of priority reservation now that they actually have to sign up for classes can we give people um cubby storage now that we have to restrict the number of people that can kind of like be in one spot at once if there's a lot of things like that that you could potentially bundle together and say hey listen if you want this quote-unquote premium offering it's an additional blank per month and, you know, that can sort of get that like revenue per member potentially up to something that does actually make sense. And, and you know, it might not be the, the exact same model as before, but we're hoping that we're able to um, come up with something like that, that, that does get the, you know, even if the, the total number of people paying monthly is down, that the, the sort of like monthly recurring revenue is at least close to what it was before. Todd, are you guys still, um, is, is Legion, are you guys still rolling with the remote coaching? Business? Yeah, How's that going? Yeah. Yep, totally. 
Yeah. And, and that's actually, I expected that to be impacted by COVID as well. Um, and it really hasn't been for us. I don't know what that's looked like for other people doing remote coaching. Um, but I certainly expected just like the overall instability and potential lack of access to gyms, et cetera, to, you know, have people be like, you know what, I just can't really continue with, um, with remote coaching. But right now, I mean, you know, we, we, we really retained like a, a really solid percentage of our clients throughout that. And, you know, people were just kind of like happy to do, whatever overhead reverse dumbbell lunges and burpees in their in the corner in their in their homes how are, how are you running how are you running all this man so you're you're doing in south loop you have group you have id you have personal training and then you have an entirely separate business and they're on the remote coaching side do you have partners do you just have a bunch of great coaches with you how, how are you doing this yeah, I mean, probably kind of like all of the above, right? I mean, that that um, in the gym, the brick and mortar gym, we have uh, I have business partners there. Um, they actually, at, at this point, I'm pretty much the only one who's like a full time owner operator. Um, one of my partners who moved to California still does a lot of like the back end stuff as far as finances, things like that. So that's super super helpful. Um, and we have several full time coaches who are working at the gym, right? So the the goal there is has been to sort of like free me up to work on the overall like operation and systems of how the gym runs, which, you know, I mean, I, I think there was a, a morning chalk up uh, article about this recently, right? But a lot of just like tracking metrics, building systems, things like that, right? I mean, Carl, you had some, you had some stuff to say about that. So, you know, a lot of my role at the gym isn't so much like on the floor coaching, whatever, like I will do some of the, the onboarding process for new folks and try to, to, to dip my finger in the sales process periodically to, you know, kind of facilitate that and make sure I know what's going on. But the, the reality is a lot of it is like, I mean, like a lot of jobs these days, it's like, Oh, what's, what is your job? Well, it's essentially to write software, like fiddle with, um, systems that don't quite work right, you know, and send email. Right. So, so that's a lot of what I'm doing for the actual, for the actual gym and for the, the remote coaching. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, uh, one of our coaches, John Colborn, who actually moved out to, um, Denver and bought CrossFit Omnia out there. He and I are partners in Legion and, um, we have another coach, Luke Holmes, who works with us there. So, you know, that, that, that's a lot of content creation, you know, doing podcasts, writing articles, things like that, and essentially just designing programs for people. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm able to kind of lean on a lot of folks to, to keep things moving in all those areas. I mean, I think the other, the other aspect of it is just, I mean, you know, I, I'm very regimented and bizarre with how I organize to-do lists and systems and things like that. And I just kind of like write it up and try to prioritize and just keep executing one thing after another. And it's, and it's, um, you know, sort of like a personality flaw or benefit, depending on how you look at it. How many people are you coaching right now, Todd? Yeah, with uh, with remote clients, you mean? Uh, yeah, or let's just say remote plus individual design inside of your gym. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have um, I, I I keep myself at ten clients for that. For a while, I was much higher than that. You know, I think that the the peak clients I was working with was around thirty at some point, and then um, just as my responsibilities with you know the content creation, the business systems, meetings, management, et cetera. You know, as that starts to grow, you're like, God, I cannot handle writing another program right now. And like this person needs their training and it just became somewhat miserable. And it's like, okay, what's a sustainable number for me? And, and 10 seems to be about right, you know, where you can sort of um, maintain the the fulfilling aspects of it and like actually work with people and not just be caught in this, you know, dread of like, uh oh, I have to get these programs out. They're not done. My brain is mush and I can't 
possibly conceive of writing another A1, A2. Like, I don't even know what you should do. I don't care. I don't care what you do. You just don't want to be in that spot. You're just like run and do a hundred dips and run and do 200 <laughs> yeah. something. Here's this, here's here's this like... cool workout that I found. <laughs> Check top. it out. <laughs> On top of juggling all that you do, is fitness still like a big priority in your personal life? Uh, I mean, big priority is probably a little bit of a stretch. Um, you know, more, more like get, get training in and, and don't let it fall too far by the wayside, I think is, um, uh, you know, the, a more realistic, more realistic way of looking at it, which is, you know, certainly at, at various points, like training has been something that I've really enjoyed and like really, really prioritized. Um, and I would say now it's more like, this is important and I can't let it slip too much and, um, just sort of like force it in. And recognize that even if, you know, you don't want to do it and it's not exciting and your brain is like, just don't do your workout, like finish this broken thing on the website instead of doing the workout. You're like, no, you just have to go start it. And then once you start it, it's going to be fine. And you're going to be okay with it. So I think that that's um, uh, pro probably the a more realistic way of looking at my own fitness. It's always interesting just hearing coaches and business owners and, you know, people that have been doing both of those things for such a long time to just to just hear how they battle their relationship with fitness because it it seems like with most people Todd it it gets to a place like that where it's like this thing used to be a massive priority for me and it's that's why I got into this business because I enjoyed to do this thing so much and a lot of people think and a lot of coaches slash business owners think um, I think this may have been more prevalent five years ago but they're like, I want to go all in. I want to coach and I want to own a gym because all I want to do is exercise and train all day long. And it's like, as soon as you take that leap and now you're a business owner, you're like, oh my God, I don't actually have time to do this. So it's always interesting to see how you navigate that, that battle. Because we all love fitness, right? It's like, that's in all of our brains where we're like, how do I continue to do this? And not only do it, but fucking enjoy it, right? Because that's super important. How... Where, where where are you going with that man like are you are you the type of guy that's like you know you're good with your relationship with fitness or are you still working on that I wanted to jump back on your point about like people wanting to open a gym because they're like, yeah, you know, I just love coaching. I love working out. I've had that same conversation with many people where I'm like, listen, if you love coaching and you love working out, do not under any circumstances open a brick and mortar fitness business, especially in a major downtown environment, because the last things you're going to ever want to do or be able to do are coach and work out. Like, like I said before, you're going to fucking write software and send emails and like deal with scheduling problems and management. Like that's what you're going to do. So be aware of that. Um, but in it, it, that, that, that said, I do think that there are plenty of people who are able to set up, you know, their fitness business so that they can coach and work out. Um, it just, it just requires a lot of, you know, being deliberate with it. And again, I think that that's a more realistic option for people, not in a major downtown environment where just like the overall rents and competition, um, and just like cost of doing business is so high that like the sort of like owner operator coach who's like, yeah, you know, I have a few clients who I work with and I'm able to rent this space or whatever and sort of live the life I want. Like that's not realistic in downtown Chicago. Chicago or New York or something like that. Whereas, you know, if you travel 50 minutes outside the city and you can get a, a lease in a, um, you know, a, a sort of like warehouse type of building out there, like you can probably make something like that work. So I, I too have had that, that conversation with folks, but to, to kind of circle back to your question just about fitness. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, 
I would like to have a little bit more, let's just say bandwidth in my schedule so that it doesn't feel like there's such an opportunity cost to um, my own training, right? Because I think that that's where, that's where it really starts to bother me is like, I know I should be doing this, but I mean, like I said before, you know, for, for example, I, I recently rebuilt the, the website for the gym, right? That it was kind of like this hacked together monstrosity and it had all these problems with it. We were paying for all these services that didn't really do what we wanted them to. And it was like, okay, this thing just needs to be stripped down and rebuilt. And you know, you're like in the middle of something and you're getting this weird menu behavior and the form submission isn't working. And you're like, do I really want to stop doing this and go do my training? Like, no. And it's probably more of a priority that like the website works properly, but like we just have to get it done. And so I think getting to the point where there's, there's less of that like obvious opportunity cost to my time spent training, um, I think would be helpful for me, but you know, I I'm really okay with it just being this sort of like, a um, like an ancillary maintenance activity. It's not something where I'm like, yeah, I just really want to devote, you know, hours and hours and hours to training again. Like that's not really anything that I'm super interested in. You set yourself up for failure, man, opening up in downtown Chicago, that's for sure. It's not, you know, I, I, I think that the uh, a, a boutique fitness business in a downtown area in a major urban environment is like really just not the best idea. That the, it's, there, There's a lot of factors going against you. Have you ever thought about uh, moving, moving your facility to like the suburbs? No, not really. I mean, I think that, I mean, again, like from a business model perspective, that would certainly be a lot easier. Um, I, I think for us, we're, we're fortunate in that, you know, through years of perseverance and some lucky breaks along the way, um, you know, we're, we're sort of like the leader in the market in downtown Chicago. So it's like, okay, we've established a pretty good position. And then even with a pretty good position, it's like, this is still a very difficult business model, which I think you see again, in a lot of adjacent industries like restaurants or whatever, where it's like, you have this restaurant in a major urban environment downtown. And it seems like there's a lot of people there all the time. And then you look at the actual margins on the business and you're like, wow, how does that actually work? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit better off than some of those restaurant businesses, but you know, I think that we've, we've done well enough that it's like, okay, we've, we've sort of like won the, a lot of the hard battles. And now it's a matter of just being able to, um, uh, tweak a lot of little stuff that's still kind of like needs to, needs to, be adjusted and then hopefully you see where we we come out on the other side of the 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 current uncertainty with covid but i think that we're you know we, we've built something that at least kind of makes sense given all the the difficulties yeah down down the road man in in kenosha down the road from you i mean that that place is burning down right now man um, yeah and that's that's my hometown and what oh really i didn't know that yeah yeah well i was i was born in chicago but i, I grew up in kenosha um yeah what why don't you call it Kenosha? Because <laughs> I'm not from there, man. Um, what are what are you guys? What what are your thoughts on that, man? Like I know, like the the George Floyd stuff in Chicago that hit that hit really heavy, protest wise. And you know, I have a lot of family in, in Chicago still. Um, so just kind of hearing the stories of uh, of what what's ha what happened and what's still happening there, and then this happening this past weekend. And there's a lot of Chicago connections with Kenosha. A lot of people from Kenosha are from Chicago and vice versa. So what, what, are, what are you seeing right, man, right now, if anything? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's um to to your point, right? There's just a lot of like general unrest in a lot of um a lot of urban environments, right? That that um there were certainly very large protests in Chicago, um you know po- post uh, post the George Floyd situation, and that there was um a lot of like widespread looting and stuff like that as well. I mean, you know, down the street from our gym, they were looting the the target that um you know a lot of nearby businesses had uh stuff thrown through their windows someone actually kicked our door really really hard and kind of broke our lock a little bit but it was like basically fine so we, we came out reasonably unscathed from that um and then actually recently that this was uh, uh maybe a few weeks ago there was um a police shooting on the south side of chicago and then actually a bunch of misinformation associated with that shooting which i think this is the more like kind of like dangerous and difficult aspect of these political situations, right? Is that, um, police ended up shooting someone who was like an armed person committing a crime who was brandishing a gun at the police, right? Which like, you know, independent of like a lot of like broader systemic issues, et cetera, it's like, okay, if police are going to be shooting at someone, someone who's committing a crime and pointing a gun at them, like you can kind of see how that happens. But what ended up happening is that there was, um, uh, misinformation spread on social media that police had shot and killed, um, an unarmed 15 year old, right. Which is just, wasn't the case. And then there was another round of like looting, um, all night based upon that. Right. And our coach actually came in at 6am and opened up the gym and messaged me and was like, Hey, there's like people looting right outside the gym right now. I don't necessarily feel safe here. Um, and they closed down downtown Chicago again based upon that. And so, um, we ended up closing the gym for the day where I was like, yo, if you don't feel safe, like just, you know, shut it down, email everyone who signed up to come in, tell them that, you know, access is cut off and that it's not potentially safe, et cetera. And so I think that one of the, um, one of the challenges with stuff like this is that we're seeing a lot of folks, getting these extended work from home orders. Um, we're seeing this potential for, um, significant social unrest and, and potential violence, even if there's not necessarily like a, um, a root cause that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And that that's something I think is concerning to a lot of people, right? Where it's like, if there's this type of reaction every single time that there's a negative interaction between an individual and police in a country of however many million people, like, what's going to actually happen down the road. And so, you know, I I don't necessarily see that as being something that's going to be, um, whatever continuing to escalate like that. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of tension and a lot of justifiable anger right now. Um, and I do think at some point that, that some of the, at, at a policy level, that a lot of stuff is going to have to change, um, in terms of how, you know, we handle policing in this country, how we handle, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of like entrenched interests of police unions and the, in the way that, that officers are protected in legal ways that kind of don't make a lot of sense, like qualified immunity. Like there's a lot of stuff like that, that I, I do think is going to have to change. And there's going to have to be more of a cost on actual police departments if, and when there is some sort of, you know, um, unjustified violent incident. And that hopefully some of that is able to, to change the political dynamics that do result in this kind of just like, whoa, okay. You know, people are, um, reacting very strongly to, to a sense of injustice that, um, you know, whether or not the exact details of everything that is being, uh, reacted to is correct. It's like there, there is a reason for it. And I do think that, that politically we are going to have to do something about that. Yeah, I think you hit it on the hit the nail on the head with the the tension comment, man, because and I didn't realize this until, you know, actually leaving the Midwest 15 years ago. But 
there's there's a lot of tension in the Midwest because a lot of people look at Chicago, Midwest, and you know Minneapolis, Milwaukee is like you know it's it's the Midwest. It's not it's not the South. There's not like a a massive amount of racism everywhere and all that. And getting out of that environment and just living other places around the country and around the world, I look back at the Midwest and I'm like, man, that because I have a lot of family from the South as well, and I'm like, gosh. The Midwest mirrors the South in a lot of ways with just a lot of racism and, you know, a lot of a lot of issues with the police. And, you know, that in Chicago, man, it's it's massive there and even worse as you go uh, a little bit north to Milwaukee and, and Kenosha. But, yeah, I think it just there's just so much tension there that it's just you don't really realize it until you get out of it and you live somewhere else for an amount of time. And you're like, well, wow, I didn't realize it was that bad there. So just. You know, I, I, and, and I'm not saying anything is justified or not um, in actions that are happening right now, but you have to, when you take a step back, you can, you can get, you get it, right? You understand it just because there's so much tension that's built over the past, you know, few decades, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what pocket we're in and, you know, who we associate with. And, you know, I have a lot of, you know, cop friends and, you know, someone next to me may not have a lot of cop friends and, you know what I'm saying? So I think it just depends on what circle you run with and that, that kind of molds the way that you think about all of this stuff. But, um, man, I think, you know, I, I do think we were kind of calming a little bit, but just seeing that this past weekend, it was just that feeling of like, here we go again, right? Because I have, you know, my brothers and sisters live blocks away from where that happened. And you just, I just look at Facebook, right? And I just look at like friends from high school posting pictures of Kenosha and you're like, what? the city's actually completely burned down and it's still going. Like right now there's live feeds of buildings burning down. So the entire downtown is literally gone. Like it's literally burned down. So you look at that and you're just like, this is like Mad Max type shit. Like this stuff is actually happening right now and it's not going to stop in the foreseeable future in that little pocket. And I think that's gonna continue to go to Chicago and Chicago is gonna come down there and it's gonna go to Minnesota again. And I think it's, God, man, I think it's just a, it's good to have conversations about it just to get perspectives, especially yours, cause you're right there right now. But yeah, I, I think, uh, I think we're, we're at the beginning of this thing again. Yeah, and, and to your point, just about the Midwest, you know, it's, oh, it's not like the South. and. There, there may be some truth to that in terms of like the the legacy of you know let's say um, uh, quote unquote institutionalized racism is a little bit different in the north right that in the south you had like very clear on the books laws that were like you shall not come here whereas in Chicago it's like well why don't we just build these expressways and public transportation in an exact way to isolate you know black communities from the rest of the city. Right. So it's a much more um, it, it, it may have the same effect, but it's more like permission, pernicious. And to your point, like uh, um, breeds like a, an extreme lack of trust. Right. Because it's like you said that, you know, this was the north and this, that, whatever. But actually, if you go back and look at how uh, the Daly family set up certain things or, you know, moved moved University of Illinois at Chicago from its original location, like specifically to block downtown from black neighborhoods and things like that, you're like, okay, there's there's a lot of stuff that happened here that, that essentially it, it has created a, 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 um, a powder keg that's ready to blow based upon a lot of, like I said, justified anger. And 
again, the, you know, the exact mechanics of how those things are, are manifesting themselves today. Um, again, it may be something that, that maybe doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't know all those details or isn't aware of some of the ways that, um, uh, you know, certain communities have been like very specifically and purposefully targeted by larger institutions. Um, but that, that, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what the solution is, but it's definitely something that you're like, yeah, this is, this is something that, that probably could have been prevented with, uh, um, you know, a lot of changes, but, you know, but there, there, there weren't necessarily good incentives to make those changes at the time that it's always easier to, to appease the, um, the constituencies that want, you know, oh, okay, well, we want to, we want to protect our neighborhoods. We want to protect our businesses. We're afraid of these kinds of people, et cetera. And it's like, what do you think, Georgia? What are your thoughts on the whole? <laughs> no, sometimes hard for me to weigh in on uh, just not having grown up here and experienced life in America as a child. Like I moved here when I was 22. So uh, I do have a different perspective on it in that regard. But uh, prior to moving to Arizona, which is we're very sheltered here. Um, I think it's fair to say we live in a bit of a bubble uh, in, in Scottsdale. Uh, but I lived in Detroit for five years, which I think has a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of a there's a similar dynamic to what's going on in Chicago, just in terms of how the city is set up and historically um, white flight from the city and how that's left people very much uh, separated. And yeah, it's it's like I said, tough tough to weigh in. I'm um, just not having having the context, but I've certainly seen that play out living in the Midwest and living in Detroit. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, Todd. I think. Uh... I think we'll wrap it up there, man, on that, uh, on that note. Great. It's kind of hard to follow that one up. <laughs> yeah, very uplifting. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Good conversations to have, though. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for coming on, bud. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thanks, totally. Todd. Stay with us for more Backroom Talk. Yeah, that was my first time like, really sitting down and chatting with Todd, but I know you guys have a history. Mm -hmm. How has how OPEX and Todd been connected in the past? Yeah, Todd's, Todd's an OPEX OG, right? Like he, he explained how we got into fitness um, in our conversation, and it was around that time that he also got into OPT. Uh, just because, he, gosh, he, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my entire life, right? So um, you can kind of imagine him getting into, like imagine him sitting in a, a CrossFit level one seminar. He's the type of guy that's going to be thinking the wheels are going to be turning, and he's going he's gonna to ask himself, this can't be it. Right, so he went and searched for those answers, and that's how we found James and OPT. Um, he's from Chicago, so so from my hometown, and um, you know he he owns South Loop Strength Conditioning, which is just they just have such a great reputation in in Chicago and in the Midwest. Um, so yeah, I mean Todd's been doing this for a really really long time, and he's he's done a lot of things in his life, right? I I know I said he's an, a really interesting guy, but. You know, you just, you talk to them and you're like, usually when you're talking to a coach slash gym owner, they're just like fitness all the way. This guy's like, yeah, I traveled and, you know, I was in a band and I'm, I'm thinking like they, they put their pennies together and we're like traveling around the country. But this guy was like warp tour, tour, traveling around the world in a legit band. And he's a, an unbelievably good musician. Um, and, you know, just his academic background and how well-spoken he is. He's just an impressive guy. Yeah, he's incredibly thoughtful. And you can see that, like, with every question that we asked him, you know, there's always a calculated response. Yep. And he's thinking about both sides and weighing it up. Uh, but, gosh, there's so much value. Like, if you're someone who's working with people, uh, as a coach does, I think in having that perspective and having those life experiences and not 
not thinking that fitness is like the be all and end all, but knowing that there's things outside of that, like mm. Todd obviously does. I think that that's a huge value add for a coach. Yeah, it was also it was also great to get his insight and to just you know how he thought about you know the the COVID situation and how he handled that in downtown Chicago, which was just an absolute mess. Uh, it still is, to be honest, but uh, it was an absolute mess. You know, March, April, May, um, and then just to get his opinions on what's going on, you know, in Kenosha, which is bleeding up into into Chicago right now with the shootings and the rioting and uh, you know the the killing on the morning that we actually talked to him. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it was good to get his perspective and he has, he has a good one, right? Like I asked that question and that was 50, 50. I was like, he may just be like, you know, breeze over it or something, but we had a 15 minute conversation on that. And he talked about, you know, Chicago and the history of Chicago and the Midwest versus the South. So it was really good to get his perspective on those things. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, one thing I found interesting as well is just the way the gym is operating right now. And he was upfront and honest, uh, that, with the way things are and the ability to only have 10 people in and uncertainty around people wanting to return to the gym like he doesn't know how long they can continue operating like that now i trust that again he's taught he's gonna figure a way to pivot and uh, and make it work but yeah that's a reality that a lot of gym owners and coaches are struggling with right now yeah.